Welcome to Anti-Racism for Lunch, where I, Sandra, a Black woman, and I, Kat, a white woman, have real dialogue about race where we are taking a bite out of racism one conversation at a time. So grab your lunch, sit back, and join our conversation. Welcome back to Anti-Racism for Lunch. Today we're having a conversation at a local bakery, Good Cakes and Bakes. So if you hear some background noise, that's where it's coming from. Um, it's on the historic avenue of fashion, Livernois Avenue in Detroit. Co-owners April and Michelle Anderson are a married black LGBT couple and they opened the bakery in 2013. They've been hugely successful, even being featured on Oprah. We're trying out their famous 7-Up Pound Cake and it is delicious, in fact. <laughs> my favorite part is the icing, which has got just a little bit of cream cheese in it, which is my favorite. It's my favorite part about all their desserts is their icing. Um, this was the 7-Up Pound Cake is actually very good. So and your back. favorite here is? Oh, it's the strawberry crunch by far. The strawberry and I crunch. really like the lemon blueberry, lemon blueberry bread or pound cake or something too. You can find them online. You can order their stuff at goodcakesandbakes.com. Welcome back to Anti-Racism for Lunch. Today we're sitting around talking about representation. In our last episode, we thought we'd be sharing a podcast on tone policing, but we had a tech issue on our first try. We did record the whole thing. And then we tried to re-record the topic and discovered that our very organic and unscripted process works best. And trying to re-record a previous session just comes off as not real. So we archived it and have moved on to another topic. This is both top of mind for us today. So representation, the question or questions, does representation matter? And why do our spaces still not look like our communities at large, especially the places where important decisions are being made? So short answer, question number one, does representation matter? Absolutely. Um, it, it matters because very, just to the fact that our the biases and stereotypes that we have are built on lack of representation or misrepresentation. So um, just even with um, KBJ's confirmation, it just is like that representation matters, right? But it will, because she's the first, it, it almost makes her a target. Like, because everything that she does or does not do or says or does not say will be a point of like investigation or something for someone to critique. Like she'll be under a microscope. From now until And for clarification's point, Ketanji Brown Jackson was just appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court after a very contentious, um, what would you call it, interrogation, really. Yes. Um, and it's 2022. And we just now, after two, I don't know how many hundreds of years, 300 years of history, have a black woman on the Supreme Court. So does it matter? It, it absolutely <clears throat> matters because in 2022, 2021, 2023, every time someone says it's the first black blah, 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 it's like, oh, this is great, but now where do we, how do we rally behind one, rally behind and kind of like support, promote, celebrate, but then also on the other hand, like protect and shield 
I mean, that person carries a lot of weight. The so. pressure of being the one. Because not only are you being scrutinized, not only will she be scrutinized from everyone else that's not black, she's also going to be scrutinized by black people. Like, you're in the limelight. Like, don't mess this up. Um, I remember there was a lot of critique over Sidney Poitier, um, who recently passed, and him being the first black man to win an Oscar and be in films and the pressure he had to represent. So does it matter? A hundred percent matter. Because if she wasn't the first, if she was the 19th or the 25th, the third, it, it lessens that, right? Like, because hopefully she can still move and decide and live organically, but I don't think that happens. I think in every step, every breath, every movement, she's going to have to remember that she's the first and the only until she's not. Yeah, and I think there's this um, sense, I think this comes up in a lot of diversity circles of getting a person of color or getting a person, which is, well, we talked a little bit, <laughs> relates to tokenism, but um, it's also having one person, um, sometimes there's a sense that that person is going to represent every, is going to represent the perspective from that community and that community is not one perspective at all it's multiple it's infinite and to to think one person can possibly represent an entire community is really ridiculous yeah so representation i i mean not even just in places of like decisions i think it's just it's everywhere it's like i mean things are changing rapidly on tv just with um shows that are on tv but all of that like that matters movies books i think it all matters i mean i can tell you that um like in our house when the boys were little like we made a concerted effort to make sure that we bought lots of books with black characters by black authors with pictures that represented like people of different family structures like we we went the extra mile to locate and populate our bookshelves with representation of mm -hmm. anything that would represent the kids, whether athletics, but not just an at a black athlete that was a basketball player that was always winning. I mean, we we looked for we looked for a gamut of things, um, and it's it was it's more so about not pigeonholing you, right? Like you, this is what this is what is being portrayed or was being portrayed in the media that you know black males athletes or in prison, like. No, those aren't your only options. Like, here are some other things that you can be. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it matters. And maybe it, I often hear that just seeing, just seeing a black male teacher doesn't necessarily change, um, change a kid's view or perception. But if you ask kids, adults who've actually had a black male teacher, just having that teacher in their life changes their whole, like, their whole educational career. Uh, representation for me, it's a big thing. It does matter. So I hear you saying that one of the most important parts of representation is seeing oneself represented in positions where there's decision making, where there's power, where there's authority, and seeing people thrive, be successful, who look like me, mm -hmm. and how important that is. Um, as 
like role modeling and you know you can see oh this this person could do this I could do this I could I could do that I remember someone asked a question about like when when was the first time you had a black teacher and I grew up in a you know mostly white town suburb of Chicago Glen Ellen for a shout out for my Glen Ellen people <laughs> and um, I was thinking about that question and I don't think I don't think I had any black teachers the entire time at all from kindergarten through high school so then I'm like okay now I gotta move forward <laughs> college so I went to Albion College and then I was thinking about do I have any black teachers at Albion I'm like I had one and he was from Ghana so the college had hired a quote-unquote person of color a black teacher but he wasn't American and I saw this happen. I see this happen a lot too. Like if there's any kind of racial diversity within kind of a decision making or power leadership group, that black person is has an is like English speak. He's like from Great Britain, or she's from Ghana or Ken, you know, Kenya. So they're not. They don't have the African American experience, like the diaspora and all of the, all that goes into that. It's almost like, you know, there's the. There's, um, I think it's built on the stereotypes of what it means to be African-American in this country as opposed to internationally African. That's interesting. So I went to school here in Ferndale. And so when I think about the first black teacher I had, um, what comes to mind was the first like teacher, teacher. So I had um, two in the same year, a man and a woman at, in middle school at Coolidge um, and both were like they weren't they were elective courses but I had to but that was not my first experience with a black educator my first experience was at Harding in elementary our librarian was a black lady um, and so every time that question is asked for the life of me I cannot remember her name but um, I can remember that maybe by second grade when I was truly reading on my own, I can remember her saying multiple times throughout the second through sixth grade, like I just got this new book and it would always be a book. It would be a brand new book and it would be a book with a black character, a black girl. Uh -huh. And it was, a, I can't even remember the first book. Whatever the first book was, I'm not gonna have to go home and look. She actually gave me a copy of that book. Um, but yeah, um, and when I went to Harding yeah. at the time, I was probably, when you think about the population of the school, 400 kids, there were probably 10 or less children that were not white in that building. And I knew all of them because we all lived on the same block. So does it matter? Yeah, it matters. It's it's a big, It. I mean, for me, it has always mattered because I, even though I remain living here in Ferndale, um, it's not perfect, right? So I still sought out things, sought out representation in just not in necessarily my like living space, but just everything else. You know, when you brought up that thing about books, um, you know, I've thought many times about, so representation isn't just about people in positions, but it's also the representation of different perspectives in our literature, mm -hmm. like in our books and, and, and things. And um, I was thinking back to my education, particularly K through 12, but also I think somewhat into college and what kinds of books I was given to read. And um, 
I went to Glenbard West and we had, you know, I, I don't remember reading any black authors. Now, I don't know if like they weren't pointed out explicitly, oh, this is a black author, this is a white author, but you know, the classics, quote unquote, I'm doing little air quotes here, they're typically all white or Greek or, you know, that those kinds of authors or European, um, white European authors. And um, I don't think I read any black authors, not until I got to college. And then I got some Toni Morrison in, some Gloria Naylor, because I was in a, that was my women's studies class. That was the most diverse reading selection I was exposed to. And, um, and then after college, I um, became closer. I had more black friends and some who went to historically black colleges and universities. And they started teaching me about authors like Langston Hughes and, you know, some of the um, James Baldwin and, um, and it was like, wow, this looks like this whole world out there that no one had ever exposed me to that. Like my teachers had not taught me was there and was important. Like W E B Du Bois. I never read his stuff. I mean, like these are like important thinkers that never ever got shared. Those voices and perspectives. I remember reading, it was just like a couple of years ago, I read the autobiography of, um, it wasn't the autobiography of, um, I can't help you, there are a lot of autobiographies out there. It was the first book, I, it wasn't written by him because he passed many years ago, but it was written by his grandson. And it was um, the first first person book I'd ever read that described the experience of being Native American in a world where your land was being taken away from you. And I recognized at that time that every single perspective I'd ever read relating to indigenous peoples was always like a quote or a paragraph. It was never like a whole story of like, what does it mean to have a map? And when you've never seen a map, what, what line is being drawn in this property? There's no line in this ground. What are you talking about? There's no property line on the ground. And talking in a foreign language and being expected to understand what that meant and then having things be, it was a really interesting read for me. And it was mind blowing to me that I had never ever read a book from that perspective before. Now you have to remember the title. I know. <laughs> so we can put in the notes. Um, and so why do our spaces still not look like our communities at large? Um, I, so part of it is, I think part of it is who wants to take that on? Like, do you, do you want to be the first? Do you want to be the only? And do you want to carry that weight? Uh, I think it's a big lift depending on what it is, right? Like, especially if that position holds a large amount of power or weight, right? You don't want to be the, right? Because you're coming with a microscope. The only. You're coming with a microscope, no matter how big or small it is. So, yeah, I think, um, I, I don't know where I read this, but um, when you have uh, the one entering a group, a decision-making body, so say it's like a group of all white people and they get their first black hire, they are under a microscope. And, um, and it takes at least three 
to one, display the multiplicity of perspective within a particular community, but also not to have that kind of pigeonholing effect. And it also provides like support for the, for the um, group that's kind of entering the space to not be in that pigeonhole kind of effect. Like three is like a magic number. But what do you think about that? Yeah, I think three is a good number. Two, yeah, I two think it's hard, right? Two, is, especially if, if you, the two of you, yeah, two is hard. Like if you disagree, if you disagree, or if your perspectives are so varying on things, then the microscope is still applied. Well, Sandra <laughs> thinks this, yes. but <laughs> yes, it, yeah. So Which three. of you is the right represent <laughs> representative of the community? Yeah. Three is probably a good number because then if we all disagree, at least they can't pick one of us, right? So three is a good number. One is tough. Being the one, being the only is tough. I've been that a couple of times and it's, it could, yeah, it's one of those places just like either one, the group isn't ready. They think they're ready. Like, that's why we have you. It's like, yeah, that's not why I'm here. Well, and then there's the expectation that you're going to be the voice of for diversity, equity, and inclusion. You're going to do that work, even though it's not in your job description. Yes. I remember when I worked at Affirmations, and I didn't understand this then, but when I worked at Affirmations, we hired, um, we were like, oh, we're going to tackle the fact that it's just white people coming to the center because it's historically white nonprofit like so many others. And we reckon, you know, we were getting feedback that um, especially black community members didn't feel comfortable coming in. Like, oh, I can either be gay or I can be black here, right? I can be gay when I come in, but then I have to like code switch and not be my, my full black self. And so we're like, okay, we're going to fix this problem and we're going to hire an outreach coordinator who's black, who's going to outreach to all the black people, which was a recipe, of course, for disaster because not only had we like Put that person in a terrible position of being the one um but also there was no like internal facing scrutiny you know it was the problem is external to us we're gonna just maybe the invitation hasn't been put out right you know we invite people they just don't come why could that be um well it was because we weren't welcoming because we shut people down when they came in our doors that's like an internal work that needs to be done but we went ahead and got representation to face externally to then try and fix the problem and bring people in. And it was a disaster. It didn't work. It didn't work because the internal culture wasn't there to support it. And um, her and two other black staff um, ended up walking out one day citing a hostile work environment because they didn't feel welcome included they felt like they had to put their black identity aside yeah that can be difficult that's it, it so this is the reason that I always say do you want to be the one and only because you I don't want to be the one speaking for all of all black people or all people who identify as black because depending on the season I may not identify as black so you know not everyone is like black just that's just not just it so then I don't be like, well, black people think X because maybe it's what I think, but it could be. I think that from my immigrant grandparents who are a, a hodgepodge of other things as well. And it's not really black just right. because my skin is brown, but it's yeah. a mix. It, yeah. It, so, no. Well, I'm like, look, now here we have on the Supreme Court, we've got Clarence Thomas and we've got Katanji Brown Jackson, two very different people. 
Right? Right. <laughs> right. They need one more person. <laughs> they need three. <laughs> they need a third. They need the magic number three. <laughs> so what do we want people to take away from this conversation? So our, our question was, does representation, ma- does representation matter? And why do our spaces still not look like our communities at large, especially the places where important decisions are being made? Oh, we didn't really answer the second part of that fully. Well, the quick answer on that second part for me is that we do, uh, white people often uh, make decisions without checking their unconscious bias. And they still make, you know, constantly make decisions about hiring and recruiting and choosing based on who's in their networks, who's a good fit, and um, they're not recognizing what's going on. In fact, one of my most detested questions is, or statements around hiring is, well, we got to make sure that they have the candidate is a qualified candidate. When talking about racial diversity in our hiring, we have to make sure the candidates are qualified, which A, of course, says immediately, oh, the black candidates are not going to be qualified in some way. There's an assumption that. And is that statement ever said in relationship to a white person being hired? No, never. I've never heard that statement ever being said in relationship to hiring a white person. I think the other part of that too is not even just the qualifications. All too often um, when someone is leaving, like it's a planned exit from a position, um, it is about who you know. Oftentimes that person or the company is asking like, well, who do you know that will be a good fit? So that you're basically getting a new new (laughs) replica of the person leaving. Yeah. if, if the space is all white and it's a white person leaving, typically they're grooming another white person yep. to take their spot. So, Well, and I think the internal culture of the places and spaces hasn't changed either, which is why um, one of the reasons. So, so people in their own networks, like you're saying, I, who do I know? Who's in my networks? That's who's I'm, who I'm bringing in. Another thing that's always said, well, the, the candidate pool for this sector is not very diverse. They, and of course they mean racially diverse and they, of course they mean there's not a lot of black folks in this sector, which is every single group I've ever worked with has said that. And it's just not true. It's where you're looking. It's where you're looking. And it's, it's also where you're looking. It's not just where you're looking. It's also who are you? So who are you as a company? Because like the, if you're known as a racist company, I don't know how many black people are like, let me, let me come work for this racist group. Hello. Yeah. So again, that goes back to internal changes. You need to walk your talk. If you believe in this, you need to turn it internally. Uh, How are you shifting how you do business with your staff internally, with your people? How has that changed and shifted so that when you are seeking to bring new people on, they feel welcome and included when they come in in authentic ways? Yeah, I think so that that prompts like in another role the school board realm like all the these school boards are saying how they value equity diversity we need to do this work in the district but then when you look at the people who are sitting at the board who are making the decision they think it's right for the staff to do this work but they themselves aren't doing the work and they can't figure out why things aren't changing mm-hmm. so just because you made a statement and doesn't mean that the work is going to get done because if it's not a true value of the board or the true value of the people who are making the decision or the, in these, in most cases, the, the demands, nothing changes. 
yeah, this is a major criticism across the country right now. All these groups coming out with statements, statements of commitment, but what are they actually doing? Right. So what, what should people do? What do we want people to take away today? Does representation matter? I think we just unhashed that. Yes, it does matter. So unequivocally, absolutely. <laughs> totally. Um, what should people do? Um, so I think, I think black people are already doing it, right? They're showing up and they're seeking out, um, and representing where they can, um, and pushing where there's a lack of representation. Um, I say, continue doing that. I also think, I know I said that, you know, we value, I always evaluate the risk <laughs> before I jump into something. Um, but if there's a risk that you can take where you change the representation, I say take it. But make sure you evaluate the risk before you jump in. Like, evaluate that risk. And if it's something, if it goes, if you evaluate the risk, and even if the risk goes very badly, can you withstand the outcome? If you can, I say take it. It's that important. And we didn't even touch on, um, I mean, these conversations of ours are so organic. They can go in any number of infinite directions. We didn't even touch on, you know, the power of having a Katanji Brown-Jackson at the Supreme Court and the decision-making level and why that those kinds of positions are so important because those are where all the decisions get made that affect real people's lives. Um, and, and to what you said, it's just so important to take that, take that up. Um, for me and for other white folks, I think it's really about turning it internally. It's like turning the, the microscope on yourself and looking at your own network. So, you know, I, oh, I can't find people or I invite people and they don't come to the table or it's them. It's always them. And when you hear that word that they or that them language, um, it speaks to not having a relationship with people. If you had relationships with racially, you know, a racially diverse group of people, you wouldn't be asking that question. You'd be building that relationship and growing your own kind of cultural, flexible understandings and your own self-awareness about how you relate to people. And you'd have a diverse network. You wouldn't have to ask for it. So it really starts from internal. It's like, well, well, look at your, look at your relationships. Who's in your relationship? I, there's some stat somewhere that's like 87% of white Americans have zero people of color in their social <laughs> network, in their, in their like kind of networks. It's like a really high, mm-hmm. high number, which is different um, from all other racial groups in the U.S. All other racial groups have a much more mixed um, network, but white people don't on the whole. And um, just look at yourself, look at your relationships. And, and, you know, if you don't have any, start, go do something different. Attend different groups. There's plenty of things out there. If you think you're in um, a white, a very white region of the country, um, you know, there's always racial diversity, even if you're not seeing it. It could be maybe you have local, you know, Mexican-American communities. There's things to get involved in, churches, community groups. Um, native people, there's lots of different ways to do this. You just have to look for it. And then 
It's not about just going and watching. It's about forming relationships with people. Get a, join a book club with Zoom these days. You could do anything. You absolutely can. I, I think that's, I think that's good. I think you have to look, right? Because if you don't look for it, then no, it, I mean, they're not looking for you. <laughs> they're not looking for you. <laughs> so you need to get out and look and not when you make those connections, not make it about you, right? Like it's not about you. No, it's about building relationships and yeah, expanding your own self. Well, I guess that is about you in some ways. <laughs> A little bit. All right. So next time, I don't know where we're we going next time. We'll know when we get there. We'll know when we get there. Yes. <laughs> Until next time. Until next time. As an epilogue to this episode, we wanted to share with you the book that I mentioned during the podcast, which is called The Journey of Crazy Horse, A Lakota History. It's written by Joseph M. Marshall, who himself is a Lakota Indian, and he creates a really vibrant portrait of this man, his times, and the legacy. And I um, also want to point out that, you know, I was talking about the perspectives that were absent from my growing up years. And so I read this book and I can't even remember the title or the author, which speaks to the invisibility that indigenous peoples face across our country. So wanted to make sure that we share the title of that book and its author. Thank you. If we sparked your mind, body or spirit today on issues involving race, Hit like, share it out, connect with us on Facebook or Instagram. Got a question you'd like to see us tackle? Send us an email at antiracismforlunch at gmail.com. No hyphen. Thanks. We hope you'll join us again soon.